it's good to be back. And I thank Pastor Jason uh, for closing out chapter 11. And where we've now arrived is we're going to create not so much of a break, but allows us to properly segue from chapters 12 on to 21. And the reason why I say this is because this gospel is not like the others. There is some harmony and that cannot be denied uh, throughout the first three gospels, but this one in particular has a particularly clear message. So with that being said, what I'm trying to provide in the next roughly three weeks, yeah, I should get this done in three weeks here, is we're going to provide a summary because what this summary is going to allow us to do is we don't want to forget what we've learned. We've come a long way. I would probably scander, and it's very interesting because now it kind of brings me back to my own vocation. But when I had returned here, I believe of April of 2021, if I'm not mistaken, is when we had started. And we had June of 2023, and we've gotten through the first 11 chapters. So, what has transpired and what have, what have we learned in particular about this gospel book? Well, this book has its own distinct style. Easy enough. And the next sermon I'm going to have, we're going to talk about the application of how the Old Testament is used within John's writing. But then lastly, in particular of this gospel, we will see the Christian life laid out to us. And distinctly, how we are, what we to believe, and how we are to behave. Let us now go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful that you have allowed us to be here of full faculties. And given that you have brought your Son to live amongst the creation and habitation, Lord, we thank you. And we love you. And we ask that you be with us today as we continue to learn what we are to do, how we are to be behave, what we are to believe in order to be obedient to you and your son and working with the Holy Spirit in us. So in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're curious, that was a 30-second commercial. <laughs> so to properly title this sermon, I will call this John's Stylistics, Stylistic Approach, looking at chapters 1 through 11. Or in simple terms, because as seminary students, we always need a title and a subtitle. But to keep it very simple, the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 11, John's style. Now, my scripture verse, believe it or not, is looking at verse 12. 30 in chapter 20. And note what John states here. It's, it's very simple here. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these 
these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And from your belief, you may have life in his name. Very simple. There's no real added point to make here. But, but, what it is telling, ho, 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 as I will start with an introduction, I will now recite the very words that our master relays to Thomas. Because Thomas was one of the disciples. Thomas was an eyewitness to all the signs and wonders. So, why does it that Thomas has distrust, or better yet, at a synonymous term, doubt that Jesus is the Christ? Well, our Lord stated, when he saw Thomas after the resurrection, because you've seen me, you now believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. As we speak here from the pulpit, the pastors did not perform the signs that the Messiah had conducted. We related to you. So why do you believe that they actually happened? It's because of the Spirit. The spirit working in your heart to do so. But Thomas was there, was he not? He was an eyewitness to all the signs and wonders. And yet, even to the point of the last miracle, which is the resurrection, he did not believe. So why is it so important? It's because the Messiah says, do not trust your eyes. And John showed this again and again in his book. So, with that being said, it's not just by your very eyes you can't trust. You could be Jesus' brother and still do not believe. Do you remember in chapter 7, by verses 3 through 5? Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples, wait, your disciples may see your works. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do do these things, if you do do these signs, show yourself to the world. And note what John states by verse four, 5. For even his brothers were not believing in him. So here, the theme is very clear and very important. Do not trust your own eyes because Thomas was an eyewitness. His own blood brothers by birth was an eyewitness and yet they did not believe. You must now understand our old master said him well by John 3, 7, you must be born again. Therefore, to close that introduction and now to segue, just so you've seen what we're going to approach today. As I go through this summary, the next three sermons, they're not chapter by chapter, but provide some sort of a recap. And they're not so much going to be in chronological order, but whatever is necessary, I will go there. But in, in examining the first 11 chapters, we have 
the witness of what I would say is over a majority of the Lord's ministry at work. Because when we get to chapters 12 to 21, we're going to see those final days he has on earth. Now, let's begin. And what's interesting is that the historical account on which this gospel text was written is in God's providence and God's providence alone. But I want to clarify, when I first approached this, I gave you an introduction. Why? I'm not just trying to talk out of the side of my mouth. I'm not trying to provide fillers to fulfill a Sunday. And it's not to go on a diatribe. It's giving you a foundation. If this gospel book was written, don't you want to know the history behind it? And if this gospel book was written, was there a reason behind writing it? Such details, are they not important? I mean, you look at the gospel of Matthew and Luke, they begin with genealogy. You look at the gospel of Mark, it starts at the very beginning of his ministry. So then why does John have to start from the beginning? From Genesis. The truth is in the details. Therefore, in taking to using that starting point in his prologue, in God's providence, there was heresy to correct. So when you go back, and if you ever get time to, but when you look at the introduction, I did broach to you about the heresies of those days. And those heresies were damnable. That means if you believed them, you set your foot and it's due time to destruction. You are not going to be with the Messiah if you believe those heresies. So what does John do? John takes you to the beginning so that you see the harmony of the Old Testament onto the new. Why? Well, if you knew about the Ibionites, they were Jewish Christians who tried, in this perspective, to bind Jesus alike Moses. For you see, Moses does not take to sacrificing himself, but the priesthood was brought to do the sacrifices properly. The Ibionites took Jesus to be Moses-like unto the people. Historical context here. So for them, Jesus can't be the son of God because he was born from a woman. They thought of him to be a natural man. So if he's a natural man, he lacks divinity. But oh, it goes a lot further from there. Serentius, his damnable heresy was so much that not only was God was a natural man, <laughs> the fact that even if God were to have engulfed 
on a compass into the body of Jesus. He left. He comes and goes as he pleases. In particular, to get the historical doctrine right for those who are of that particular uh, notion, his body, he, God left when Jesus was on the cross and died. He said that God died. That was the premise. That was the in conclusion to his heresy. So what does John do? In his gospel book, he attacks them from the beginning. And he takes to the prologue to show that Jesus was God. Now, in doing so, I want to make the other point clear because there's no schisms in the scripture. All four men who wrote the gospels did not sit in the same room. I can assure you of that. <laughs> and I even went and broached to you how some of those particular gospels are written. It's particular to their audience, but also particular to the writers. But the writers are also important because if you know, there is no schisms in scripture. So how is it that all these men can speak in harmony? It's because of the spirit when they pen their letters. This is very simple. And this is the reason why I'm doing this recap and summary. Because it's gonna be very important that we relay this foundation so when we go on and move to the latter portions of the chapter, we'll have a complete understanding as to why he states what he states, as to why he prays the way he prays, as to why when we take to the last days, from the trial on to the resurrection. All this is made clear because we have a clear foundation from what transpired in the beginning of the book. Now, speaking of schisms, if you recall in the introduction, I brought to you Acts 17. And when I brought to you Acts 17, note how far along, and you can think of it in terms of distance, but note how far along from the time the Messiah died, as the apostles are going out to their churches, they do not have telephones, okay? There's no way to communicate other by letter or by travel. Note the harmony that Paul has to John as he begins. Watch. I'll start at verse 23. And note how Luke had narrated this. For while I was passing through and examining, this is Paul speaking, the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands he nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things now <laughs> let's go on to john 1 
1 through 5 here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I do not see a schism. I see harmony. And what's interesting, <laughs> and this goes back to even what I want to make an address, but what's interesting is the fact that only by the Spirit can you believe what Jesus did. Why do you think all the humanists speak as cynics? They cannot imagine the impossible being possible. That's why Ibian, that's why Serenthius believed what they believed. They cannot imagine and see those things. So what then does John do in continuing from the understanding that you are to believe that Jesus is the Christ? You to believe that the signs that you've never seen but only are hearing because we will pontificate it from this pulpit? What is it that you to believe? Well then, he makes comparisons. And if you want to improve your vernacular, here's a $10 word, juxtapose. But he juxtaposes and creates this economy that is complete opposites, light and darkness. And it's not because he just wants to do it, so because he was playing with a light switch, and I'm just speaking in humanistic terms here, but it's to show just the gravity of the difference between the two. I'm not looking at it from good versus evil. But the use of light versus darkness, what does light do? From a humanistic standpoint, it illuminates everything. And from the aspect of darkness, it you can't see a thing in whatever you are that darkness has engulfed. And notice that word, engulf. What happens? In complete darkness, everything, everything. It's pitch black. And if you were to walk in the darkness, can you see? Lest there's light? See? The juxtaposed way he uses light versus darkness also have meaning. And this brings me to this point here as we compare it. His use of the light versus the darkness has three aspects. Let's look at the first one. The special witness that was brought, John the Baptist, was foretold to prepare the way for the light. And if you even really look at it, you can imagine or understand from this concept, darkness has engulfed the world. From the time that Adam's disobedience transpired, darkness engulfed the world. Nothing is the same as it was in the beginning. 
And at an appointed time, Christ, oh, sorry, but God in his providence allowed for a special witness to prepare the way because light is coming in the darkness. In this aspect, the first time we can see it mentioned again, Luke brings it up as he gives us the understanding as the angel appears to speak to Zacharias. And what's interesting in particular, what the angel states, note here, do not be afraid for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear your son and you will name him John. You will have joy, you will have gladness, and many will rejoice for his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will not drink wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his own mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And by verse 17 in Luke 1, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit, in the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. But then note what John the evangelist warns about John the Baptist by verse 8. John the Baptist was not the light. He was to come and testify about the light. In this aspect, and just in this comparison of light versus darkness, the apostles were also called to be the light. He, their own Messiah stated in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. We too are told we are children of the light once we're born again. Ephesians 5 verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Mm, mm, mm. So, alike to John the Baptist, alike the apostles, alike ourselves who walk in obedience to the Lord our God. We are called the light in some way, shape, or form. But our light is a liken to what the light is in which Christ illuminates us. Because you see, if you recall, as you were looking at the prologue in chapter one and why it took that time to break it down, the light of man is that we have reason endued in us. We've been made in the image of God. We give him an distinct worship unlike the animals, unlike the plants. No one can do, no thing in creation can do what we as humans can do. And this particular light is very distinct. He could cause the rocks to worship him. The rivers and all the winds and everything that blows and grows, they worship him and they are obedient at his call. But we as people created after the image of God, that's what that means. We've been endued with a light of reason and understanding. But the light compared to the darkness, 
the light that can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh is our Lord Jesus Christ. And by verse number nine, note what John states, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, we ourselves cannot change men to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to make that point very clear to all those individuals who think they could. I would like to see you take your hand, put it in somebody's chest, and have them go from being absolutely a heathen to being a choir boy. And I'm just speaking facetiously. But we can't change people to believe the truth. I mean, whether you're saved or not, you have various ideologies. Don't get me wrong. But Pastor Jason, Pastor, uh, Pastor JP, and myself, stating in the proper English grammatical here, uh, we all believe in the Reformed faith. But don't get me wrong. We have different aspects of ideals that we will see because one sees it this way, somebody sees it this way. So it's not to say we don't have ideologies and mantras that when we employ and speak to someone else, we don't hope that they will gravitate towards us. But when it comes to the obedience and the belief of Jesus Christ, we are all in unison. And that's what bridges us all together. That is having Christ as our federal head. And we're going to talk about that later as we get to the conclusion. But nonetheless, John makes clear the light that Christ is to us being of the light. So secondly, in looking in this light to darkness comparison, the light that Christ encompasses encompasses the whole aspect of creation. Again, I can't make this up. This is right here in the prologue. For in him was life, and the life provided reason to men. John 1 verse 4. In fact, note when he gave his thesis in John 8 by verse number 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light also encompasses true judgment. John 3, 19 through 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And by verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light because the fear of their deeds will be exposed. Remember I told you, darkness engulfs everything. When we as individuals and from the posterity of Adam took on that punishment and curse. We too have been engulfed by darkness. And in engulfing by darkness, those who embraces it do not practice the truth. They will run. They will lie. They will have hate in their heart. 
and they're blind. 1 John 1, 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 9 and 11, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This clause, the darkness that has blinded his eyes, holds much weight to which the prologue was written for. Note, we go back in John 1, 9 through 11. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That's what darkness does to everyone. You hate the light. And John uses this, this verbiage to make note of our difference between us and Christ. But, as our Lord noted well, the darkness was not going to reign. For we who practice the truth are of the light and we are children of the light. And note by John 3.21, he states, He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The Messiah also states, he will not stumble. John 11, verse 10. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And by John 1, 15 through 16, note here that in being in the light, you will find grace. John the Baptist testified in John 1, 15 through 16, crying out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a greater rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Note how I'm going to segue here. Look at all the interactions we've been privy to. How about Philip to Andrew to Peter and Nathaniel? In John 1, 35 to 51. How about the Samaritans and the Samaritan woman? John 4, 1 to 38. The nobleman, or in some people's versions of the Bible, the centurion's man, or the official's son. John 4, 46 to 54. How about the blind man? In John 9, 1 through 12. And also verses 35 through 38. Those people saw the signs and they believed. To continue, as now I'm bringing the portion of light to a close, we're going to look at the aspects in regards to Christ's divinity. And this is a particular stylistic to which John shows in his gospel book. And Depending on what 
version you have of your Bible, some of you may note that there are titles that breaks it. In particular, some may see that it was stated in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 9, 9 to 35, I'm sorry, um, chapter 9, 35 to 41, and in chapter 10, 22 to 42. But when I brought to you in the beginning, in John 20, of the signs, so that you may believe that Christ is Lord, his divinity was further proved and furnished in those signs and miracles. In chapter 2, with the wedding at Cana, or if you want to call it the miracle at Cana, or for some people's books, the waters turn into wine, that particular miracle, what transpired? By verse 11 in chapter 2, this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. The second sign was the nobleman's son being healed in chapter 4 and by verse 54. The second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee, the nobleman believed that day. Now, there are also signs and wonders. For example, we saw him feeding 5,000 in John 6, 1 to 15. Two, walking on water in John 6, 16 to 21. To healing the lame man in John 5, 1 through 14. To the blind man in John 9, 1 through 7. But the penultimate to raising Lazarus from the dead, John 11, 1 through 44. The signs affirm the divinity of Christ. But I told you before, even if you partake to being a very eyewitness to all those signs and wonders, that doesn't mean you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. For you see, <laughs> unlike the lame man who believed in the Lord by verses 9, chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, or the disciples who witnessed him walking on water in John 6, 16 to 21, the signs then just became a stumbling block and in some points, judgment for those eyewitnesses. How so? How about in John 5, when he healed the lame, uh, I'm sorry, when he healed um, the lame man. The lame man did not go in a way worshiping the Christ, but rather went to go tell everybody that I've received my faculties once again. And from that standpoint, in, in God's providence, there was a reason why he was chosen, I guess in his excitement, he just decided to tell everyone. But there was no point that we have an understanding, or is it very clear, that he left away believing that Christ was Lord. Well, that may not convince you. How about in John 6? He feeds 5,000. They even proclaim from their own lips by verse 14, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. But what does our Lord do? He knows their hearts. By John 6, 15, he goes away. And when he returns back the next day, by John 26 to 28, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. 
So rather than believing from the first miracle from the latter day, they saw additional signs. They said, you know what? The first one wasn't good enough. We need more. Why? Because it's no different than what we're talking about today. We heard what Moses did with the people. For our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Look how it comes back full circle. So, does he give to their wishes of providing more signs? Absolutely not. He then takes to doctrine, which then causes them to grumble about him. John 6, 41. They question his coming. John 6, 42. And then they even go provide a further argument. Why do you speak to us in this way? You're crazy. Who can believe your statement? Until they all withdrew. And the only one that remained was the original 12. John 6, 67. They had the sign. They thought they believed and saw it. Because remember, by John 6, 14, they said, truly, you are the prophet. But when Jesus called them out on their bluff, they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Well, who, what do you think, who do you think you are? You think because you fed everybody some bread, you're better than Moses? Well, if that sign doesn't sell them on something, let's go on now. Because we just recently heard from John 11. Our Lord takes to raising a man from the dead with every intention to do the work set out before him for the will, from the will of his father. And he does it to perfection. But note during that entire chapter, all the reluctancy, all the distrust, all the dismay that came with it. How so? His disciples were reluctant. John eleven sixteen. Martha, Mary, and the Jews who accompanied Martha and Mary agitated him to the point that he was brought to tears. Why? Because he is human after all. Would you not be upset if all of a sudden you were quote unquote tasked with a job and you were thought to have failed? Everybody's looking at you and blaming you. You're by yourself. Your own friends don't believe you. They're thinking, why did you bring us back here? All these people are emotional hysteria. Because they thought you were the God-man and you can raise their brother from the dead. He's human. He cries because he's agitated and upset. John eleven twenty one. 21, Martha states, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary states in John 11.32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The Jews state in John 11.37, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind? Oh, ho, ho, we saw what you did for the blind man. Now, could you have kept this man from dying? The distrust, the doubt, the dismay. Do you think John the Apostle was leaving, putting this in here? 
so that they think, you know, you have a right to be upset with the Messiah? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He is showing you here the comparison between light and darkness. Yes, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but they were still sinners. And they did not comprehend nor understand what he was tasked to do. So then let's bring this back in full circle. By Again, chapter 20 and verse 30. Many of these signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, but they weren't written in his book. But the ones that have been written is so that you will believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what's amazing is that we did not walk with the Lord in that present day. Because if we all did, I wouldn't be shocked if one of you doubted. Any one of us. Because it's unnatural. It's impossible to see those things happen in real time. But if you did walk in that day, the difference is, if you truly are one of his, you would have been like the Samaritans who believed and wanted to house him in your home. You would have been like the nobleman who instead of having him come to his home, he said, you say the word and it's going to happen. That's the difference to when you're born again. The awe and admiration you will have for the master is that you do not want to discomfort him. You do not want to raise him up to anger. But you ask for mercy and you ask him to do the will of the father. And whatever he says happens, you obey. And what's amazing is that he tells us, don't worry if you weren't there in my day. You are blessed if you did not see those signs and yet believe. Because now it will become apparent to you, don't trust your eyes. I'm going to open them. And when you hear the men speak, and pontificate on these pulpits, you will know when you hear his voice. And his sheep knows his voice. Shall I now look to the Lord our God in prayer?